0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So, today I'm, I'm very excited about the guest that we have, and, and he's someone that has really reshaped, I would say, the, um, the online dating uh, sphere. But then also, I think he has done a lot for the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So, without further ado, Sam Yegan, welcome on board today. So, Sam, you've, uh, you've built multiple companies from nothing all the way to, to the finish line. So, right now, if I, if I was to ask you how many of those companies were actually acquired, how, how, how many are those?
1: Uh, I've been a part of two companies uh, that, we, uh, that I co-founded uh, and sold. Uh, those are SparkNotes and OkCupid.
0: Got it. Wonderful. So the first company, and you were just saying, alluding to that SparkNotes. So I think this was right out of college. So you were finishing, a, I think you were studying at Harvard. And, and that's the time when you came up with this initiative. Is that right?
1: I had the great fortune of um, uh, getting to know, you know, two of the best entrepreneurs I've ever met, um, Max and Chris, Um, my freshman, in fact, my very first day uh, of college, I was Max's roommate and Chris lived across the hall. And we built just a wonderful friendship throughout, um, throughout college. And then Chris had the initial idea um, uh, to build a startup and Max and I joined and, um, and yeah, we started the company literally in our dorm room at Harvard, our senior year.
0: That's amazing, and and how? What was the incubation uh, process like? Because you mentioned that uh, one of, one of them had the idea, and then you come into the mix. So so how how all this come? Com- how did all this come about?
1: Yeah, well, you know, this was back in in uh, nineteen ninety nine when you know the world was a very different place in terms of everything from what it took to start a company. Uh, you know, we didn't have the cloud, we didn't have you know the ability to just um, you know. Uh, fire you know, spin up, spin up some services and, and have a product in market, and simultaneously, uh, this was a time when universities um, weren't as um, uh, weren't as supportive of their students starting companies. Right, there were a lot of concerns about using um, school resources or distracting from school, uh, those kinds of things. So, you know, you have to go back to to to, to 1999. Chris, um, who's just incredibly creative, uh, had put up a website, um, and had just started sort of dabbling with it on his own, uh, you know, keeping Matt's and I up to speed on what he was doing just socially. And I certainly didn't think it was a business. Um, he had, you know, he was sort of, it was more of a project for him. And, uh, it wasn't until the spring of our senior year when he said, Hey, you know, guys, I really think we should, we should make a business out of this and, and start a company. So he'd been dabbling sort of on the side. Uh, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't until March that we actually incorporated. Um, almost twenty years ago, actually, this mo- uh, In a couple months.
0: Nice, nice. And and what was the business model of uh, SparkNotes so that all the listeners, you know, get to understand what was that first initiative, what what it was.
1: And again, uh, I think we would do it very differently if we were starting the business now. But at the time, you know, in the late '90s. Uh, all of these content media companies were all ad supported. That was the primary driver of of, um, of the business. It was all eyeballs. If you remember, and that was even you know that was the term. And so at the time, the idea was you know nobody had really put study guides online. Uh, Cliff's Notes was obviously the market leader. They had the print. They had the they had the physical books they were selling in bookstores. They didn't want to disrupt themselves with that, with a different business model that was that was ad supported. Um, so they had put some of their books online but they they um uh, they require you to to pay to, to 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 access it uh and so we believe that study guides were the were the classic example the textbook example for a business that should be ad supported uh because you only have to write each spark note once and then you can continue to publish it over and over and over again um now you know if if we had if we, if we were starting that business today i think we would um be much more interested in in uh, direct to consumer businesses because payments have gotten so much easier now um than they were in the 90s but collecting a collecting a payment online especially from students was you know pretty much un, uh, unthinkable in 1999 so we were um so we pursued a, an advertising model and um and that was that was the business model when we launched
0: got it got it so so I believe there was um, you guys finally ended up getting acquired and there was like multiple, I would guess, steps or phases. And uh, there was yeah. first an acquisition. And then when when kind of like the, the dot com bust, then there was uh, another transaction that happened there. Yeah. So so before we actually get into that, like how was the business doing, let's say, from a revenue perspective before you decided to to head that direction?
1: tiny um, when we uh, when we when we first started getting acquisition interest. But again, you've always got to go back to the to the moment in time in history, like in the late 90s. This was really the peak of of the Internet bubble and um, any brand, any website that was getting a lot of traffic was considered valuable by strategic acquirers. So, you know, when 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 the when the company started approaching us about an acquisition, they didn't care about our revenue. They didn't even ask. Really, they yeah. were saying, uh, how, many, how many eyeballs do you have? How many, you know, how many, um, they weren't even called uh, monthly active users. They were called unique visitors at the time, right? So how many unique visitors are you getting every month? And, we, you know, we showed this graph of, you know, our, our month-over-month user growth was so strong that that was the basis on which we were acquired. So our revenue was, was really, really tiny, um, uh, at the time we sold.
0: Got it. And how, how did you guys finance the operation?
1: Um, another good question. So, um, when we first started, I was actually, I had actually gone through on-campus recruiting in college and I actually got a, uh, a job offer from a consulting firm, which I, I took the job offer, but deferred for a year, um, because I was pursuing the startup. So I actually took, $7,000 $7,000 signing bonus that I got and deposited it directly into our bank account. So the first $7,000 came from a signing bonus that I got. <laughs> um, but uh, but I that didn't last very long. Um, throughout the school year we mostly were all, you know, we were all living on campus and so we didn't really have any, we really didn't have any bills to pay until we graduated. Uh, and that's when we raised a, a $250,000 uh, angel round from, from some family friends of uh, my partner
0: Max. Got it. I mean, two hundred and fifty thousand back then was probably like three million today. No. It was yeah, exactly. which is ironic
1: because um, it was actually much more expensive to
0: build a company. I would argue
1: right. in nineteen ninety nine. So you would think that you know uh, you'd need less now and need more then. But uh, but obviously the you know the availability of capital has changed so much that you know it's so much easier to raise uh, a ton of money now than it was then.
0: Of course, and then you guys went into the M and a process. So, so what happened there?
1: Well, we started getting phone calls, um, and, and emails from, um, acquirers. Uh, we certainly didn't go out to try to sell the company. Um, but as you know, as you know, as I said earlier, like if you had, if you were demonstrating growth and the third party analytics companies and market research companies were, were sort of, um, uh, singling you out and tracking how much growth you were getting then those you know it was pretty easy to attract inbound acquisition offers so we got uh, probably four or five companies that were really interested um, uh, in in acquiring us and um, uh, we talked to a bunch of people but we ended up getting the most interest and the most serious interest from uh, a company called iTurf which was the internet spin-off of a catalog company called Delia's. So Delia's was this um, uh, clothing company for teen girls and young and young women. And they had spun off Delia's.com into its own standalone public company. They had acquired some other internet properties and their idea was to combine content, community and commerce. That was sort of, you know, that was the big idea back in the late nineties. And so they spun that, Company off into a public company called iTurf,
0: and uh, and they uh, they made us an offer that we couldn't refuse. Got it. And I believe that offer is also public, which is uh, it was it was thirty million. Is that right? Yes,
1: yes. So in less than a year of work, um, you know, we started the company in March uh, of two thousand of ninety nine, and we sold the company in February of two thousand. Um, you know, just eight weeks before the market crashed, which is not because we were that smart uh, or that uh, prescient, but. We basically, you know, we were a bunch of 22, 23 year old kids and we had the opportunity to make thirty million dollars for a year of work. And so um uh we were just lucky that we chose to sell rather than just raise more money, uh, like a lot of other companies
0: um in that time period did. Got it. And then what happened with Barnes and Noble?
1: Um, well, we were uh we were acquired by ITR for a year. Of course, uh, you know, eight weeks after we were acquired, the the, the bubble burst and the rest of two thousand was, you know, just a terrible time for um, uh, for internet companies, our parent company lost 95% of its value, uh, uh, actually lost about 90% of its value the rest of that year. And as they figured out what their strategic options were, one of the, one of the things they, they tried to do was to sell some of their assets to, to, um, uh, to get cash and to sustain their operations longer. So they approached us and they said, Hey, we'd love to try to sell Sparknotes. Um, and in order to incentivize us to participate. They actually gave us uh, 50% of the proceeds of any sale that we were able to do. So we then took the company back into market. And um, unlike a year ago when we had a lot of interest at a, at a pretty high price, we actually had very little interest at very low prices. And so we ended up um, selling the company to Barnes & Noble for about $3.5 million uh, just the year after we sold it for $30 million.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So, so I guess from, from this experience, Sam, what, what did you learn?
1: Learned so much. Uh, I'm a big believer that you learn uh, more in your failures, more from your failures than your successes. Um, I think the single biggest mistake I've made in my career, and I've made many, um, but we had the, you know, I, I just said that um, Barnes & Noble offered us 50% of the proceeds in this transaction. So uh, if we had been willing to pay just half of that $3.5 million, if we'd been willing to pay $1.75 million, we could have bought back Spark Notes. And I mean, as I look back on that now, it was so obvious that we should have done that. Um, Spark Notes today is a is a thriving brand that you know probably ninety percent of all students in America know about, um, with millions of of visitors and and um, uh, and a great business and a great brand. And so we were just too short sighted and probably too scared, if I'm being honest, uh, to make that to make that decision. So uh, that was. Um, that was just a big mistake and then you know at barnes and noble we all stayed a year as you know we agreed to when we when we did the deal and um it was a great learning experience to be in to go from being at a at a dot com to being at you know one of the oldest um uh you know biggest retailers at barnes and noble and just seeing um how they uh how they viewed the coming technology revolution the internet and the threats and opportunities it posed for its business. So I learned a ton there. But um, you know, as a as a 24 year old entrepreneur inside of a large company, uh, you know, I definitely wasn't going to last very long
0: there. I mean, it's uh, definitely already at 24. I mean, you what what you had gone through, no? It's uh, it's remarkable from a from a learning experience, no, and an opportunity. So, like you were saying, so you did this then, like a couple of years doing the um, the um, you know, just divesting or, or, or just sticking around. And then after this, you, you really go for your next initiative. And this is eDonkey. So how did you incubate eDonkey?
1: So eDonkey was a very, was a very interesting story uh, on two fronts. Number one, I learned the hard way that um, entrepreneurs can have a very hard time getting a regular job. So after I left Barnes Noble, I actually applied for jobs on monster.com. And what I found was that even though I thought I had these great experiences, I was a CEO, I had done all these things, um, the market for my services was very limited. Um, no big company wanted you know, a CEO because uh, what, what job were they going to give me? You know, nobody's going to give me a, uh, an executive level job with two years of experience. Um, so I, I found that I didn't have a lot of choices. And I had met... Um, uh, I had met Jed McCaleb, who is, you know, one of the, uh, I think, the greatest um, entrepreneurs, and certainly one of the greatest tech visionaries of our generation. Um, I, I had met him through a friend, and he had he had already started incubating um, eDonkey. He'd already he already built the technology, but hadn't really commercialized the product yet. Uh, hadn't really been generating any revenue. And so when we met, um, it was actually um, it was like a great match because he w- was the technology visionary, um, but didn't have uh, a business partner. Um, and I, you know, knew how to commercialize and monetize um, uh, an internet product, but you know, you know, was looking for for an opportunity. And so uh, we joined forces in um, er- in the summer of two thousand and two. Um, and partnered in in taking eDonkey from what was really a nascent technology to being a you know one of the leading peer to peer fostering networks in the world.
0: That's amazing. And and just for those that are listening, Yeti is also the the person behind the cryptocurrency Stellar. Is that right? Yeah, and and uh, before that, um, Ripple as well. That's amazing. That's amazing. So during this time, you guys got your, your experience, I guess, or your learnings as well on the, on the not so much fun aspects of, of building, um, and scaling a successful business, which is, you know, really the, the legalities, no, that may come right. as a result of it. So, so what happened here with all the, with all the action around lawyers and, and stuff like that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we, um, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it's always important to put these stories back in the, in the history of the internet. So. Ah, uh, prior to eDonkey and our peer companies, of course, Napster was the ver- first of the peer-to-peer fo- peer-to-peer file-sharing n- networks to get scale, and they um, they faced a, a legal flaw, a legal challenge, in that um, they had centralized servers, and uh, the 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 courts ruled that having centralized servers was itself um, illegal, and so a whole bunch of Technologies emerged uh, LimeWire, uh, BearShare, Kazaa, um, uh, Grokster, etc., eDonkey all emerged post Napster with this idea of a super decentralized network that didn't have any uh, central servers. Um, And so It was that environment in which we operated Uh, so you know we all believed that we were you know building technology that allowed people to share to share files through uh, decentralized servers. We didn't have any intent of facilitating copyright infringement and we thought that we had uh, stayed clear of the legal guidance from Napster um, in terms of how to build these networks. Um, The problem was you know while we didn't think we were doing anything wrong. um, the courts had not ruled on, on the legality or illegality of these types of products. And so um, we were constantly in the gray area. And I think for entrepreneurs, uh, actually, the gray area is probably uh, worse than knowing for sure something is legal or illegal, right? Because that uncertainty puts a cloud over any fundraising that you try to do it puts a cloud over any business development you try to do it puts a cloud over any marketing you try to do uh, because your existence is fundamentally uncertain um, and not just uncertain like most startups but uncertain specifically around this exogenous force that you can't control which is which is the courts um, so finally um, uh, there, uh, the recording industry sued Grokster and a few other parties in in, in a case that's known as the Grokster case. Uh, we weren't part of that case, but of course, um, because it um, uh, the the technologies we used were were somewhat similar, uh, we knew that we would be affected by any ruling that the court uh, issued with respect to that case.
0: Got it. And for eDonkey, did you guys raise any money?
1: No. I was uh, entirely bootstrapped, and, and I don't think we could have raised money, even if we had tried. It.
0: Got it. So basically, the, the whole idea of what happened ended up happening with e is that there was a settlement. They, I believe that is reported for about $30 million. But basically, after that settlement, what, what happened with EDonkey? We shut down.
1: Uh, when, the, when, the, when the Supreme Court ruled against Grokster, um, even though it didn't directly affect us, um, because the specifics of the case were, were of our case was different from theirs, the time and the cost that it would have taken us to uh, to litigate and def- uh, to litigate a case would, was just too high. Um, so we just uh, settled with the recording industry, we agreed to cease operations, um, and we effectively just uh, went away.
0: Got it, got it. And you know one thing I know is for sure is that things are always meant to be, and I think in in this case, one door closed, but then one of the most important doors uh, probably in your life as an entrepreneur uh, open and that was the door of okcupid okay uh, and and actually this allowed you as well to be on the list of Time magazine, one of the yeah. most influential people in the world. I had to say that sam I'm sorry oh, but you. I had yes, to say yeah. that but how, how did you come up with this with this concept Sam well uh, again
1: I, I, uh, and I'm, look, i look I've just been so lucky to, to get to work with some of the you know most brilliant uh, entrepreneurs uh, that I've ever met, uh, but this was again. Uh, I partnered up with Max and Chris from OKCupid, and, and also Christian Rudder, who um, who was uh, uh, our first uh, our first employee at um, uh, at SparkNotes. Yeah. Um, and we all came together, and you know, we all believed we we had previously thought about online dating ideas in the past, but we were all very interested in the idea of using math to um, predict compatibility. So uh, if you look back at 2003, 2004 in the, um, uh, in the online dating history, again, I'm a big believer. You've got to go back in time and understand what the environment was. Um, at the time, the leaders in online dating were really psychologists. So eHarmony had, uh, was founded by Dr. Neil Clark Warren. Uh, match.com had a partnership with Dr. Phil. And it was, you know, what was being put out in market were these psychologist-driven um, online dating sites, and to us as math majors, we believed that the real power of the internet wasn't necessarily um, in helping you understand who what you were looking for. On the contrary, we believed that people knew what they wanted, right for, for, for hundreds of thousands of years, humans have dated and gotten married and, and, and had you know and procreated. Um, So we believe humans know what they want. These other sites like eHarmony were trying to tell you here's what you're here's what you're looking for. Here's what you here's who will be the best match for you. What we said is no you know what you want. What you what the problem you need to solve and the problem the internet can help you solve is you don't have access to enough people. Right your top of the funnel is your challenge. And that's what the internet brings available the internet puts at your fingertips tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And so what we created, um, and it was really Chris's uh, 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 visionary product, was an algorithm that based on your own preferences, you would tell us what you were looking for, um, how important any question was to you, and you would tell us about your own, your own personality. And then we would do the math, and then we would take all of our users, the million, our millions of members, and we would sort them for you. We would rank order them for you. Um, in the same way that Google, Google's approach to um, uh, search, right? So if you go to Google, nobody uses the I'm feeling lucky button, right? Everybody says, okay, I've asked Google a question. Google has sorted through, you know, millions and billions of pages. And they have rank ordered all of the results based on what Google thinks I will like. And so we did the same thing. So you, you would tell us about yourself. You would tell us what you're looking for. And then based on that, we would take them, our millions of members and we would sort them for you. And that was our, our big innovation, was this ability to use math to predict compatibility.
0: Got it. And how were some of the early days of OkCupid, Sam? Um, well, no, the, I think the biggest, uh, one of our other biggest innovations
1: um, was, um, you know, with any network, anytime you're building a network or a marketplace, there's always the challenge of how do you bootstrap um, the early, participants how do you how do you solve the cold start problem um and what we did um and again this is kudos to to really chris and christian on the on the editorial side and the virality side they um they came up with a personality test so think of the myers-briggs personality test but with a dating skew so just like myers-briggs there were four axes and you could get you know one of two outcomes on each of the four axes um, so there were thirty-two different uh, personality types, and so you would take this test, um, and you would then get uh, a personality, and uh, that personality came with four letters, just like Myers Briggs, but also with a uh, a personality type, uh, a name, and this was back in the MySpace days when you you know people would put different badges or badges or widgets on their on their MySpace pages, and so we basically. Once you took the test, you would we would then give you some code that you would cut and paste onto your your MySpace page, and we ended up getting millions of people to take this test and promote their own personality and promote the OkCupid test on their MySpace pages. So we would get millions and millions of of of, uh, of clicks and and traffic from MySpace uh, to OkCupid, and in the early days before we even put up our matching engine we had all these people taking our personality test and giving us all this data about themselves and building the OkCupid okay awareness in all of these people's minds that OkCupid okay is, you know, a place to get really, really good insights on your personality, which of course sets up, you know, the launch of, a, of, a, of an actual matching algorithm and an actual dating site. That's amazing.
0: So was there like, um, like a tipping point or somewhere where you guys were like, okay, things are working, those network effects are going in the right direction. Was there like a moment where you guys were like, we got it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, as we saw the virality of the, of the personality test take off, I think we, um, you know, as we got more and more members, we eventually said, okay, we now have, we've now bootstrapped the network. We've now gotten enough people to give us enough data that we can really, instead of, instead of focusing on our personality quiz, we can focus on our matching algorithm. And so, um, we made that shift in, um, uh, about a year after we launched, uh, with the personality quiz, we, we had seeded the network sufficiently that we then flipped over to being primarily a dating site and the rest is history.
0: Got it. And then I guess from, from that point on, like, how did you see, like, especially like on the retention side or on the acquisition side of those different wheels, which really make the the networking effects go in the right direction. Was there like certain sources that, that you felt during those days were more effective, like maybe like organic from profiles or maybe from like yeah. another type of content? How did you see that? yeah
1: thing at the time was um, we were the only, we were one of the only dating sites that allowed its pages to be uh, scraped by Google. Um, most of the other, you know, most of the other sites were behind a paywall. Or you know behind a membership wall, and so um, we actually got a ton of benefit from uh, organic search at the time. Um, We had I think I'm pretty sure we had the most indexed pages of any dating site, Um, and of course all of those um, uh, those sites were inherently localized, right? They all had they all had the the person's place of um, uh, you know the city that they lived in, and they all had interesting topics and. So we naturally ranked very high for you know online dating Chicago or singles Boston or whatever the case may be. So we were fortunate in that, and and I think this is true up until the launch of Tinder. I think we were the only dating business to successfully get to scale without spending um, any money on customer acquisition. Uh, Even the other, even the other free site, Plenty of Fish, which was our sort of biggest rival throughout our growth. They were a free site as well, but they spent a lot of money on on direct customer acquisition. So for us, it was all the organic. It was uh, organic search, and it was viral uh, word of mouth. Those were the two channels that were the most successful for us in the early days. That's Uh, amazing. A little later, we we were one of the first companies, and again, the credit here goes to Christian. um, We were one of the first companies to really um, successfully leverage content marketing um, in the form of a blog. So before big data was even a term, we were blogging about our data. Uh, our blog was called Okay Trends, and um, every month we published a new post about dating insights that we got from our data. And um, that became very quickly, um, you know, as my as our as our MySpace traffic and some of our viral traffic went down, we supplemented that with um, a lot of our content marketing. Uh, and, and big data traffic that replaced
0: Got it. it. Got it. And, and how much money did you guys raise during the life of uh, OkCupid, if this is public?
1: Based, uh, we did a, a million and a half dollar seed rounds um, when we launched, uh, when, we, when we founded the company, then we did uh, a $6 million round um, uh, in 2006. So we raised about seven and a half million.
0: So when investors were looking at you guys, what were some of the let's say like the metrics or KPIs that they were like really looking closely at?
1: The, and again, this is uh this is two thousand and five. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, this is sort of yeah, it's different. But you know, after the after the crash, after the dot com crash, of course, but before the um, you know before Facebook really, Facebook had just launched right when we were we were in market. So. Um, People were mostly looking at us as a, um, they were mostly looking at the engagement metrics. They wanted to know, you know, what was the, how long were people members? Um, how much data did they provide? Um, you know, what was the, what was the um, retention? What was the churn? All that kind of stuff. It was very much uh, a standard membership type of model. Nobody was really interested in our revenue at the time because we were, you know, largely pre-revenue. I mean, we had, we had early revenue. But people were interested in, okay, what is the revenue potential of this business? Um, And what we didn't really understand then um, that we sort of learned over time was that um, ultimately we would be able to uh, really find a premium model. Um, We sort of thought we could, but investors didn't really believe in uh, freemium for dating at the time. So nobody really gave us credit for that. Ultimately, that became the primary revenue model of OKCupid and then, of course, the primary revenue model for Tinder. Um, but at the time, nobody had um, nobody had really proven that online dating would support a premium model. So we didn't get a lot of credit for that um, from investors.
0: Got it. So IAC comes into the picture. They end up uh, acquiring the company. But but walk through us, walk, walk us through the M&A process here.
1: Yeah, so, um, You know, I think one mistake I made. uh, Again, I made a ton of mistakes. I think, um, I think entrepreneurs, myself included, make two mistakes when they start companies. Uh, I think the first is entrepreneurs tend to overstate uh, the number of potential acquirers. So when I when we started OkCupid, I thought, oh, um, of course the online dating companies would want to buy us, but also you know the lifestyle companies would want to buy us, like even like magazine companies would want to buy us, maybe. the big tech companies would want to buy us, like uh, you know. I mean, if Google is all about search, should they want? Shouldn't they be interested in people search, for example? Um, so, if, if I look back at my early decks, you know, my early fundraising decks, like the list of potential acquirers was very, very long in my mind. But it turns out that really the only companies that want to buy us were online dating businesses. So that that would, So I, I was very wrong about that. Um, so I would encourage entrepreneurs as they think about possible exit, um, you know, when they start a company, to really be sober about. Who would buy this company? The second mistake entrepreneurs make, myself included, was the belief that um, I could always sell my company to the market leader. Like we're a dating business, um, Match will always want to buy us. And what I what I what I learned both throughout my own process trying to sell OkCupid, okay, but also when I became the CEO of Match, is it's actually very hard to get a deal done, and market leaders in particular. Rarely want to buy small companies in their category because if you're the CEO of a market-leading company, you only want to focus on deals that can move the needle for you that are material, right? And so we were a situation where we were a relatively small player in the category from a revenue perspective, and the only acquirers really were the, the market leaders. Match any harmony, and so um, our process was very. Um, was much more driven by when the acquirers were ready to buy than when we were ready to sell. So uh, in 2010, um, in the summer of 2010, we were be- becoming more and more well-known, mostly because of our blog. And we started getting some inbound interest from the market leaders. And that's what really drove us to get serious about an M&A process.
0: That's amazing. How many users did you have at this point?
1: Um, we had probably a couple million monthly users
0: at the time. Got it. Got it. So but then, very
1: little. But still, very little revenue.
0: Got it. So then, did you get together with the board and say, "Okay, uh, let's let's pull the trigger on really considering this seriously, going through this process"?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I I started having the conversations um, before we had a lot of, you know, before we really took it to the board seriously, um, uh, mostly because you know my my belief on these things is like they're not real until somebody's real uh, and yeah. i believe every ceo should be spending you know 5 10% of her time um, maybe 5% of her time should be spent out in market talking to strategics not trying to sell your company but yeah. building relationships with you know the strategic players in your ecosystem and so in my view that's what i was spending my time doing i wasn't selling the company i was building relationships with you know potential acquirers
0: got it got it got it no and and i think that that's the um that's a really like a great approach and and we've heard it from from other guests where they were like you know three years you know building relationships with the potential acquirers so yeah. so what what were the terms of the transaction here um, um Sam? yeah we ended up selling the company uh to
1: uh matt which was the subsidiary of iac uh the structure was um a fifty million dollar payment uh, upfront, and then the opportunity to earn uh, forty million dollars uh, in an earnout.
0: Got it. And then it's interesting because you went on at, and and you were mentioning you were mentioning it earlier that you went on to really lead the the match group, which uh, for the people that are listening operates platforms like Tinder, Match.com, obviously OkCupid after the transaction. And it's really interesting the the fact that you were really leading this, but 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 really like from like the 30,000 foot view, not just one like you were doing before OKCupid, but now seeing what everyone else was doing also with all these different properties. So, my question they really, they, the question that comes to mind is from leading and also building one of the leaders in the space, what, what did you learn from, from what makes marketplaces work?
1: I think, um, and, you know, and just to be clear, when, 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 I, when the company bought, when Match bought OKCupid, you know, there was no, there was no idea or no discussion about me being the CEO. I, you know, they acquired us. I was just, you know, I spent my first year with my head down just trying to build OkCupid, just trying to hit our earnout numbers and really just focused on, the, on OkCupid. It was, it was after that first year um, that, you know, I was thinking about leaving and doing something else, and that was when the conversation came up about, you know, potentially becoming the CEO of Match. Um, you know, I think... Um, from the Match Hat, uh, I think we really uh, it really gave me exposure to how to think about business at much greater scale. So I went from running a team of thirty people at OkCupid to a team of a thousand people at Match to running you know a very small P and uh, to running a billion dollars of revenue to running from running uh, a company that was really U.S. only to a company that had you know international operations all over the world. So most of my learning um was uh on how do you how does leadership change from a founder uh, a, a co-founders leadership style which is largely personality driven um to a sort of big company leadership style which you know requires a totally different type of communication a totally different type of leadership um and that's really i think what was most eye-opening for me um from you know when i when i switched to running match
0: got it Got it. Interesting, and and one of the things that I've seen as well is that you know after after this experience and this transaction as well, you also start to be part of of the movement of of entrepreneurship, right? So you also co-founded Accelerate Labs. You also were part of establishing TechStars there in Chicago, and then you go on to to even launch your own venture firm, Corazon Capital. Funny, Corazon right. is a heart in Spanish, so. I really like the name obviously Good. but uh, being Spanish myself, but I guess the, um, the question that I wanted to ask you here is is you've seen a lot of founders and and you know either as co-founders or founders that you ended up investing or, or that were part of those programs so what kind of patterns have you been able to recognize on those on those founders that go out and, and, and make something really big um, you know I think
1: important attribute of uh, well, there are so many attributes of, of a founder, but I think uh, one is um, uh, to be able to uh, attract a team, a great team. So co-founders, early employees, I'm always looking to who are the people that that the founder has been able to surround herself with. Uh, that's important. Uh, number two um, is a constant um, openness to new and better ideas, even if they didn't come from her, so I think you know. A pr- I don't want a founder who has like a pride of authorship who says, you know, I have all the best ideas, and you know, uh, I'm unwavering in um, uh, in my vision. Right? We need a founder who has a very strong vision, who has who who is focused on solving a real problem. But whether the whether the uh, input comes from the market, comes from a customer, comes from an investor, comes from an employee. I really need her to be able to to be open minded to, um, to 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 new ideas. Um, and then I think the third thing is really a sort of get shit done mentality. There is a time and a place for obviously research and for um, uh, and for testing and for uh, you know everything else, but ultimately, what i'm looking for is you know, in the period of time between as I'm getting to know an entrepreneur every, you know, talking every couple of weeks or every month, I want to see how much she's getting done in between our meetings. I want to see that she's gone out. She has, you know, built a new feature. She's gotten, you know, she's opened up new marketing channels. She's acquired new customers, whatever the case may be. Um, but you know, early on in a, in a company's life cycle, you have to be, um, you have to be iterating on such a fast clock speed that things are always, always happening. Um, if I'm meeting an entrepreneur and, and you know, the company hasn't changed uh, and made real progress between meetings, that's, that's a, that's a red flag for me.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so just shifting gears here a little bit. So you went to raise, I mean, you did the IPO for the match group. So it was raised. They reportedly it was 460 million, but then you go on to become the CEO of ShopRunner. So, What is ShopRunner, and what led you to really take this initiative on? Yeah, so ShopRunner
1: is uh, the easiest way. The easiest way to think about it is Amazon Prime for everyone else. Uh, So uh, the idea of being able to get a great shopping experience that includes free two-day shipping, free returns, uh, easy checkout, a lot of the things that you know people love about Amazon are actually very hard to replicate by individual retailers. Um, It's hard for any other individual retailer to offer their own uh, Prime membership and so what shoprunner does uh, shoprunner has aggregated uh, over 140 retailers and we've aggregated millions of members and we basically get we basically give our members um, that great experience at our 140 retailers so if you're a shoprunner member um, uh, and you can either uh, pay our membership fee or if you have an american express card um, or another uh, qualifying partnership uh, which you can find on our website you can get a free membership um and then anytime you shop at one of our participating retailers you get free two day shipping free returns um and seamless checkout so we try to make shopping as easy and delightful um at our retailers as it is on amazon
0: got it and and here how many people are you managing now
1: uh our team is about 200 people um we have just announced uh, actually just this morning we announced um uh that we acquired a company uh to expand our set of offerings to our retail partners. So along with this free two-day shipping membership, we also offer our retailers uh, a whole suite of technology solutions um, and products that help them uh, build better shopping experiences. So the company we just bought today is a fraud prevention company uh, that's going to allow our retailers to fight fraud uh, you know, better than they could um, uh, on their own.
0: Really cool. Well, congratulations on that, Sam. That's that's fantastic. So, so my my question here then is, uh, I mean, you've 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 dealt with different types of companies, and you've gone from, you know, managing the the four or five people type of startup to now, you know, before thousands of employees, now sure. in the hundreds. How would you say that you have evolved as a leader over time?
1: You know, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is, um, so um, one of my most formative experiences growing up um, was in college when I was a teaching assistant uh, in the computer science department at Harvard. And, um, you know, one of the things that we would do is, you know, each of, each of the teaching assistants would have a little, a little section of, you know, 15 or 20 students that we would be responsible for meeting with once a week and, and making sure that they understood the material. And what I learned as a teacher in front of those 15 students was, whenever there was a complicated concept to explain, um, what I learned was I had to explain it two or three different ways. Because some people in the class, because people in the class had different learning styles, right? Some people might be visual learners, some people might be book learners, some people might be, you know, might want to see um, uh, an analogy or a technical definition. But If you only had one teaching style, you were inevitably going to leave most people behind, and you were going to be a bad teacher. And if I fast forward, um, what I learned when I became the CEO of Match was just as people have different learning styles, people have different followership styles. People want to be led in different ways. Uh, You have some people who all they care about is what is the North Star of this company? Where are we going long term? What is our mission? What is our vision? that's what they get excited about. Some people don't care about that. Some people care only about or primarily about what are we getting done in the next 30, 60, 90 days? Because that feels real to them. They want to know very tactically what is the roadmap. Like why do I, you know, what what are we going to get done um, tangibly? And then some people don't care about any of that. Some people say what do we as a company stand for? What What are our values? Um, and you know that you know what gets me up in the morning isn't building technology. It's knowing that I you know work for a company that has values that are aligned with mine. Um, so so what I learned is more than anything is you had to have different ways of leading and different ways of communicating in order to really reach everybody. And that was probably the, that was the biggest thing that I learned. and something that I continue to this day, uh, even in in a smaller company like ShopRunner that only has 200 people. Um, is not everybody wants to be led the same way, and that you've got to be really attentive to have a diversity of leadership styles uh, to try to connect and resonate with everyone in the company.
0: Got it. I love it. I mean, I think that uh, just adjusting yourself to whatever you're dealing with. And, you know, again, just like you were saying, like it's different types of, of animals, you know, different types of cultures, different types of companies. So I, and by the way, if, if you, if you look at the best,
1: I think if you look at the best, like politicians, um, they're able to go talk to, you know, the, the speech they give at a, at a, at a, in a factory. Uh, is different from a speech they give you know to farmers is different from a speech they give to you know at a, at a university you know they're, they're different and they're not disingenuous they're not different, right they're just different ways of communicating. The same ideas and I think that that, that agility that dexterity is super important for for leaders whether it's a startup leader- um, uh, a civic leader- uh, or 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 any any other kind of leader.
0: Got it. So so Sam, when I'm nearing the typically the the end of of, of interviews here, I always like to ask this question and and I want to see what's your answer. If you had the opportunity and I know that this is impossible, but I think that this could serve as perhaps some some guidance or some advice to your own children. Um, if you could go back to the past and give yourself your younger self advice before launching a business, what would that be and why?
1: I would say that um, founders is the most important decision you'll make um, in the success of your your business and on your own happiness and fulfillment in your journey.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, Sam, you've been so, so generous. And, And just before we wrap things up, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Probably
1: the easiest. Uh, I'm at Sam
0: Yagan, and I'm um, uh, happy to engage with you there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sam, for being part of the DealMakers show. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening, and see you at the next episode.